I remember um, some years ago listening to a talk by a senior Western Buddhist nun in the Hinayana, Theravada tradition. And um, she was talking about insight. Um, and, and she said, you know, you might sit out in the garden and look at the little birds there flying around, sitting on a branch of a tree, singing even. And you might think, oh, how beautiful these little birds, how graceful, whatever, and feel touched by that. But she said, actually, you're deluded. You're wrapped up in delusion because look at them closely. Look how they move their heads, jerk their heads from side to side, always on the lookout for predators or for a worm to eat, always caught up, basically, obsessed, programmed by the uh, necessities of uh, physical uh, survival. And this is the basic, harsh reality of their existence, which you are just not really seeing or choosing to ignore. So the emphasis there is on this fact of dukkha and this disenchantment that uh, uh, with with the world and 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 with being with beings in a way. Um, so there's imbued in that, that, that uh, or rather that is a description of a view. Can you hear how that's a view? It's a concept in, in that sense of view, but it's a view as a way of looking. It's an interpretation. It's an interpretation. Uh, can you also hear how wrapped up in that view and that interpretation, in this case of, of the birds, um, is well something akin to some versions of uh, modern existentialism, but also a kind of reductionism. A reductionism to explanations according to uh, biological evolution or according to hardwiring of neurology in the birds' brains and nervous system that um, uh, make them act this way. And wrapped up in that too, that re reductionism to um, physicalism, evolutionism, uh, and, and neurology, etc., implicit in what she was saying, actually I think it was more than implicit, is this is reality. Get real. See this. See that this is actually the fact. Anything else you see is a superimposition, a delusion, um, an obscuration, a veil over that reality. So explicitly or implicitly there's a reality claim there. And that reality claim is, is, is a kind of... Um, a full and extensive one, a thorough one. In other words, this is all there is to know. For this is the most important thing to know and understand. And this is all there is to know. This is our explanation of of what a bird is, why it behaves like it does, even why it sings, um, whatever. And this overextension has been uh, what I've been uh, a big part of what I've been calling scientism, as opposed to science scientism. 
Now compare that view, that sense, that perception and interpretation, if you like, implicit interpretation, conceptual and perceptual of the birds um, in, in, in the garden or, or wherever. Um, compare that view with the view of the birds as um, angelic beings. What does that mean? Angelic beings. Uh, as theophanies, as faces, as expressions of the divine. Two views, two different worlds, actually, that are then felt, sensed, inhabited. In a sense, those two views are uh, descriptions of, reflections of, and will uh, give rise to um, different worlds that we sense ourselves in and um, perceive ourselves and feel ourselves in. And this is really, really crucial. Of course, it's it's a, the, the main theme of the retreat, but it's but it's crucial to everything. So that nowadays, in in Dharma circles and in psychotherapy circles and all that, there's so much um, emphasis. I mean, you know, rightly so, um, uh, on our psychological growth, uh, our healing. Um, our human flourishing, the flourishing of myself and self-expression and all that. But in a way, most of it, you know, whether in psychotherapeutic circles or, or in some spiritual circles, is happening, if you like, within, or could even say against, a background of uh, a meaningless, um, sorry, a meaningless, a soulless, a mechanistic universe. So here I am, uh, pursuing diligently my growth and healing and flourishing psychologically, so-called spiritually, and it's all taking place in in a bigger context, a literally background because it's not something I pay attention to, um, of this soulless, mechanistic, meaningless universe that actually doesn't care a damn, doesn't give a damn about your process, my process, psychologically. And that background, and the fact that I'm not really paying attention to it, um, has an effect. Actually, whether I pay attention to it, whether I, uh, it, it's more, if you like, subliminal, it's having an effect on me, on my sense of existence, on on my actual psychological, spiritual growth, healing, flourishing, etc. It is not irrelevant, it is not without effect. Actually, I would say the effect is enormous. So whatever we might mean by healing, um, or whatever we might accomplish in our flourishing, or my personal growth, my personal process, my healing, is actually quite severely limited. Whatever healing is possible is quite severely limited by that, um, con- by the context of, of the world that I inhabit through my view, through my conception, through my assumption. The healing itself is limited. What we mean and what we can, uh, so, you know, what, what can be achieved in a healing, what a healing can encompass, what a healing can reach, flourishing can reach, growth can reach, it, it will be limited. And in most psychological, psychotherapeutic, uh, psychoanalytic circles, etc., um, and, and certainly not all, but many um, uh, 
certainly the world of mindfulness and, and, and quite a lot of the insight meditation world, the whole discourse, the whole conversation, the whole teaching um, leaves out this side about what the world actually is. How do we, or rather, how do we perceive and, and feel the world and conceive of it and, and misses um, the uh, relevance of what's possible, the, the relevance of the effect and, and, and what possibilities there are there. Or else assume something and then gets locked into it. But generally speaking, it's not given attention. We don't realize, as I said, the effects that this has, or realize quite what we're assuming and how that um, ties in with notions of self-growth and who I am, what a human being is, what's possible, etc. It's not included in the um, awareness um, too deliberately, or if it is, there's usually quite a narrow view that assumes uh, a certain version as a set of reality. Uh, for example, that nun, or for example, certain secular modernist, really uh, type, types of existentialist versions of Dharma. So again, and point out something we, I think I said earlier, that the, the notion of, um, or rather the experience of self and the experience of world are always tied in together. Always. Self, world, codependent arisings. Uh, influence each other, shape, fabricate, uh, inform each other, the perceptions of both. So that the healing of self or the freeing or the liberation of self to whatever degree, and the re-enchantment of self um, is, uh, happens in mutual dependence with the, the re-enchantment of the world, re-enchanting self, re-enchanting world. They're actually aspects of, of, of one movement, really. And we're separating them a little bit on this retreat, but, but as I said, at some point that was an artificial separation. And even more than that, the healing of the self and the healing of the world. What does that mean, the healing of the world? What is the fullness of what is meant there? What does it mean to heal the world? What does it mean to free the world? The healing of the self and the healing of the world go together. When I heal the world, I heal myself. When I free the world, I free myself. What does this mean? What does it mean to free the world? But as usual, there's this mutual dependency. I'm leaving those questions open. Uh, I think I've touched on them elsewhere. But to say there's a fullness of, of mutual, uh, mutual dependent origination here. Self, world, go together. The causality goes both ways as well. When I re-enchant the world, I, I, I will inevitably re-enchant the self. I cannot not... And, in, you know, sometimes we break it down into stages, and, and that's just a sort of, um, what was the word, uh, ed- educative tool, uh, I've forgotten the word for that, but, but it's, it's just how we're kind of presenting practice. Yes, things can happen in stages, and sometimes they do, they evolve that way. So, for example, um, when we do a kind of deity yoga or the imaginal figure where there's eros and love, and then noticing afterwards that here is this figure um, where the self is in relationship to an other, and then noticing afterwards as a sort of stage after that, that that... Um, divinity of that image spills over in cosmopoesis to 
to the world, to the cosmos, to a perception and a, a, a divinizing, a, a making divine um, of the cosmos. And similarly, when, when we do the mantra meditation, seeing, uh, hearing all sounds as mantra, we may start the mantra even with, with the sense of um, devotion to compassion, maybe even compassion for ourselves, for other. It's um, to do with self and, and maybe other. Um, but as, as one way of opening up that whole practice with, with the mantra, as, as uh, we're exploring on this retreat with that practice, is that it opens up beyond what the self wants for the self, or for this other, and beyond even sound, etc. There's this expansion into a fullness and a sort of uh, all-pervasiveness of the cosmopoesis, self and world. So there's a cause, there's a direction of evolution there. But but actually, things can happen the other way around too, and they can happen together, and they often do happen together. It's just that we don't quite notice often because, as I said, we're often a bit more. Um, indoctrinated and trained to keep the attention on the self. The self's growth, the self's freeing, the self's healing and all that. Now, within this whole um, movement of um, re-enchantment and uh, cosmopoiesis, whether it's re-enchantment of the self or re-enchantment of the world, both together, um, really want to stress again this the crucial importance of this um, relative weighting between self and divine of um, you know the orientation is am I orienting practice and healing and um, growth and all these words is it actually oriented or is it within a conception of self self growth is that the priority is that the orientation is that the intention is that the conception or is it more um, if you like weighted towards the divine and the self really as a vehicle for the divine practice path life existence self-expression so-called flourishing freeing all of it liberation the whole thing is for God, for the sake of the divine, not for the sake of the self. That's a radically different view. And where am I um, generally in my life and generally at any time on this spectrum? For the self or for God? I'm not just talking about words or slipping back into a self-view. So just want to, to pick that up again um, and, and stress how... Uh, so much depends on, on this um, orientation or relative weighting between the, the, the self and the, and the divine. And this applies um, not just to the re-enchantment of the self, but also to the re-enchantment of um, objects in the world. But just as much as it applies to the re-enchantment of self, it applies to the re-enchantment of objects in the world. When I am... Uh, when there is some kind of enchantment with um, an object or a thing in the world, um, and that enchantment actually has more to do with the self, it's more about the self, or oriented towards, um, or from the intentionality of the self, rather than the divine. That's more my interest, my thrust. 
Sometimes you don't even realise this is going on. But when it's that, when it's more actually about the self, this enchantment I have with this object or this uh, whatever it is, piece of jewellery or uh, whatever, then it's, it's probably more akin to what we might call infatuation or superstition. So things like um, this amulet or this um, mala or whatever, or these lucky charms, that we're, we're in the realm of that kind of um, magical thinking. And their purpose, these lucky charms or this pendant I wear around my neck or whatever it is that people, people um, uh, do all over the world, the purpose of it is, is for the self. It's to give the self luck or to um, give the self protection. It's all for the self versus, or in contrast to, seeing these objects, this thing in the world, whatever it is, a a natural thing or an artifact or whatever it is, seeing these objects as theophanies, as faces of the divine. They're not for me in any way. Or, 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 again, it's a spectrum here. But seeing them as theophanies, feeling them, sensing them as theophanies, Mostly when I use the word seeing, I really mean sensing. It's just a habit of language. There's quite a lot to say about that, but really hear hear the word sensing. But sensing them as theophanies, seeing them as theophanies, that um, will, uh, rather than tightening it around self and self-protection and lucky charms and all that, this thing um, becomes a a gateway to opening um, through which beauty is opened this wide sense. There's a widening, a deepening of beauty, of meaningfulness, of the sense of divinity, and of course the the sacralizing of, of, of that object, which is implicit in, in seeing it as a theophany anyway. And with all that, there's soul-making. The um, soul dynamic, if you like, of eros, psyche, and logos um, expanding feeding each other, nourishing each other, inseminating each other, um, uh, deepening, enriching, widening together, pushing each other further, penetrating deeper, opening more. All that is made possible via the theophany, and much, much less so when it's, um, uh, via seeing these objects as theophanies, much, much less so when it's really they're seen kind of from the point of view of self-investment and self-conception from me rather than for God as something for me rather than as a face of God or for God and notice also in that kind of um, superstitious or or infatuated relationship with things and objects of the world that a kind of um, immature enchantment in, in that infatuation or superstition um, of things, um, that involves also a reification often of their magical power. I, I, I really believe that this thing is going to give me luck or protect me from uh, evil. There's also reification of evil then, you know, all, all this. Um, there is not within that kind of immature enchantment the seeing of image as image. There's what we would call an immature enchantment with, with certain things and certain objects in the world, and I'm not seeing image as image when that's going on. Not only is it about myself and for myself, I'm also not seeing as image, image as image. As I said, so much hinges in this work 
um, and, and we don't often realize this, but so much hinges on this um, uh, where I am at any time, where I am more generally um, in this relative weighting or, or leaning, so to speak, um, uh, in the direction of or for the sake of self versus divine in my conception, in my aspiration, in my intention, in, in all of that. Now this whole question about worlds that we inhabit, or, or, or the world that we inhabit, and the nature of that world, and the perception of that world, um, necessarily brings up the question, uh, or, or integral to that whole meaning of world, is the whole question of matter. And then again, the nature, the perception, the conception of matter, right? Because the thing is, the world is is to us nowadays is a world of matter, and uh, and matter also implies body. So matter, world, body are are kind of completely integral to each other. The the views, the conceptions, the sense, the perception of all that is is tied together. This is absolutely crucial. Matter. What is the relationship with what is the view and what are the ways of looking or way of looking if it's singular um, at at matter and when people use that word uh, matter or body um, or world what do we mean what is meant when, when a person says matter or, or world or body what is the conception and and the perception so again, with matter, you know, might might say a person uses it, and obviously, mostly they do, and and what's wrapped up um, in in their use of that word matter is is a whole uh, is kind of the normal modernist view, underneath which, if you poke them a little bit and say, what do you mean by that, or what is it, um, they would probably. Um, eventually, uh, sooner or later, articulate a kind of high school version of um, classical mechanistic physics. It's made up of atoms which are a bit like billiard balls and they sort of ricochet around and they combine, um, none of which has any uh, meaning or anything else going on, etc. And they they form different things which disintegrate after a while back to the atoms, etc., etc. But matter might also mean... Uh, a sort of quantum physics understanding, a whole, whole um, more current understanding of matter, where matter is not, um, if you like, uh, s- a- a- anything. It's not reducible to subatomic particles as things in the way that we usually conceive of things, as independent of the way they're being observed, as being located at any time in any place with certain other properties that we just take for granted as being part of um, properties of things. So subatomic particles in a quantum understanding are not things in the way that we think of things. There is not... uh, There's there's a whole um, uh, realm of, of difference there with what matter might mean once we actually start getting more current with our um, scientific view. Or for another person or another time, say, matter, the view, the conception of matter, if they've meditated in certain ways, and we've touched on this before, um, one of the lovely openings that can happen, mystical openings, and can become very much a, um, 
regular or not 100% steady, but 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 quite uh, very accessible and prolonged um, in time perception is that all is one and a kind of different flavors of one. All is one. All actually is is awareness in substance. So matter is a kind of, or the way that we tend to, most people tend to perceive matter, um, is it's um, in this view is is actually um, the, the reality in this in this other view is that it's actually awareness, or it's actually love, or it's, it can it can be ma- many kinds of oneness, but that's a different view of matter. Or for someone else who's explored a lot, emptiness and dependent rising and gone in different ways um, deeply into the whole question of is, is matter real in the, in the way that we think it is? And there's a whole way that the, 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 the perception and conception of um, matter and materiality, when one explores that view um, sustainedly, deeply, thoroughly, that that opens up the sense of what, what is meant by matter. Or again, as a kind of uh, Neoplatonic view, where um, uh, and that has different versions, but the sort of matter as an emanation of the divine, in in a kind of hierarchy, in some in some formulations of it. So there's a kind of transcendent divine, and then a world soul, etc. It's a down to uh, an, a, 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 a divine mind, um, and then and then matter. But matter is perhaps imbued by the divine. It's a transformation of the divine. And then also, perhaps a little more uh, at one remove, you know, in different psychotherapeutic uh, paradigms, what one means by body or how one relates to that or the conceptuality underlying body um, and matter is also quite different depending on the paradigm. So the psychologies that, of course, are very um, attempt to be very biological based, talking about neural networks, very popular nowadays. And what's underlying that, and others that relate to the body primarily as a, you know, re- re- uh, acknowledging the fantasy uh, with which body is um, seen through. Uh, or body actually seen primarily as as a field for that, and, not, and it not acknowledged as a fantasy, actually claimed as a reality. Body means different things um, in different psychotherapeutic um, sort of theories, and and again that can become very dogmatic, depending on the view. This is reality. Or again, when a person talks about matter, what are you actually talking about? What do you mean when you use that word? Do you mean the experience, the perception, and wrapped up in that, the conception of solidity, of density? Is that what you mean when you talk about matter? And then there's the whole question of air and water and how solid and dense, and whether that's, of course, that's matter as well. But if you're talking about the experience or the perception or the conception of something like solidity, density, how aware are you, or how are you holding that as a reality or as a phenomenon, which means appearance? Are you seeing there's an appearance, an experience, a phenomenality to solidity? It's a perception. It's a phenomenon, which means appearance, perception. Um, or are you just assuming there's a reality? So these n- notions of matter, they're actually underneath um, 
they they influence you know radically in terms of as a basis uh, notions senses of the world so as it says wrapped up in that and also reality and as it's massively significant and you know one thing to notice uh, here as well um, is uh, the, the word well, I'm just pointing this out as the word matter m a t t e r and the word mater uh, m a t e r which is a latin word and means mother they're actually um, related i think etymologically even i think um but there's something about this matter and mother matter and mater uh in terms of uh how we relate to that and very often um the uh fantasies and images of matter in other words what we're conceiving of um but also our whole uh, imaginal sense of matter and of matter m- meaning mother meaning also origins the, the birth of things um what gives birth what is uh yeah origins of things or or actually to do with m- motherhood um the fantasies and the images of all that um n- n- which nowadays especially in a lot of psychotherapies th- these are very um central of course to a lot of the thinking a lot of the assumptions um of of those paradigms but it's it's interesting so paradigms about trauma about um uh, w- uh what's it called Perin- perinatal psychology and influence and what happens in embryonic stages um or just about motherhood and and um a person uh thinking about themselves as mother or potential mother and just the whole area of developmental psychology that has to do with mater m a t e r mother origins and also matter all this is um woven together or um all the origins as in terms of the origins of buddhism uh and this kind of fantasy historical fantasy of of getting back to the basic pali canon buddha and exactly what he said and the origins and the origins being um better notice with all of that uh, those kinds of ways of conceiving and really fantasizing and imaging um matter and matter mother origins all that um it seems to me that those kind of um fantasies and images which imbue all of that thinking about um uh, developmental psychology and and all this kind of stuff there is almost what we could say an almost intrinsic tendency to concretize to make uh um to not see image as image these fantasies going on and somehow because of the the um what well, because of the matter and and the whole in in fantasies about matter there's a tendency not to see image as image and and to connect it it presents itself um it's a fantasy but it presents itself um or there's an assumption this is reality so whether we're talking about actual matter or whether we're talking about um as I said fantasies of origin whether it's historical fantasies or developmental fantasies or biological fantasies of origin um 
and, and, and mothering and all that. Um, why? Because it, why is it concretized, not see image as image? But partly to do with the subject matter. The, the nature of fantasies of matter tend to be um, made more solid, concretized. You understand? So is it, it's an interesting uh, kind of psychological phenomenon, I think. So can we recognize, as we kind of inquire into this area, and as, as we inquire as practitioners and as, as uh, you know, human beings interested in existence, interested in our existence and our life in this world, can we recognize um, that um, there are operating for us with... with uh, you know, at, at, at often at a subtle, unconscious level, and with huge effect, conceptions, perceptions, fantasies, and images of matter, and these, as I said, um, have great effect on how we conceive, perceive, feel, imagine, fantasize about body, ours, and others, about the world, about life, um, and the whole notion of, you know, uh, being with life and being with this or whatever, and sometimes giving rise to kind of more existentialist um, perspectives, philosophies. All of that uh, is grounded, if you like, um, based on conceptions, perceptions, fantasies of matter. And if we talk about re-enchantment, the re-enchantment of um, the world uh, and, and matter needs, uh, what's involved in that is I need to... S- almost by definition, is I need to see it not just um, according to the modernist view, not just um, that this view of flatness matter is all there is, meaning the meaningless movement of atoms um, is all there is. There is no other level of um, things, there's no other level of materiality, there's no other level of anything, it's all just matter. And that's um, the exclusive perception and deemed real. Reenchantment needs an opening up of all that's not just that. And we can talk about I'm repeating now spiritual reenchantment where um, that perception of matter opens up and it includes other views and they're recognized as there's a multiplicity of views that yes, and I can also see matter as um, as uh, awareness. All matter is is shares in the substance, the essence of this oneness of awareness or oneness of cosmic love, or uh, it can be, as I said, many different kinds. There's a spiritual reenchantment, and there's also the possibility of what we've been calling slightly clumsily this mature, imaginal-based enchantment, and that implies the the multiplicity uh, or the the, the availability to perception of, of, if you like, more than one dimension. It implies um, the this matter, this object, or the world um, as a whole, as theophany, in and through the particulars. That's different than this more general, universal, impersonal, spiritual reenchantment. It's in and through the particulars that the theophany uh, of this this thing or that thing or this object or whatever um, manifests. So just like, and we'll we'll get into this uh, more and more as the retreat goes on. We've touched on it already, but just like um, the self, just like desire, just like 
um, will, just like our emotions and, and even our suffering and our difficulties and our difficult histories, um, just like our imag- uh, images, just like ideas, matter also, just like all of those um, aspects or dimensions of our existence matter too, um, in, in the re-enchantment of it, of course it's mature, according to the mature imaginal kind of enchantment that we're talking about, is also, just like all of that, um, is seen as divine, as theophany, and as having, if you like, divine roots. If you, if you want to use that, that word, those words that I've been using. But, but this is in and through matter, in and through the object. It's not, not when you say levels or um, uh, having divine roots, the, these, this is not separate or something on, only separate or only transcendent to the appearance. Something else that I can't see, something outside of experience something beyond form and matter. So all that um, is uh, necessary, if you like, in this kind of enchantment that we're talking, that we're emphasizing on this retreat. But it's interesting, you know, it's difficult with language, it's difficult um, to come up with language that, A, uh, makes a coherent system, but also um, that... uh, describes well the subtleties of what we're talking about here and what's available. And sometimes I'm, you know, I'm, I'm aware that the, the language perhaps that I'm using will rub certain people the wrong way or they'll take it to mean, mean something that I'm not quite implying. But, uh, and if that's the case, or anyway, more generally, I think it's a really interesting exercise um, to actually inquire into your experiences of enchantment. So when you feel an enchantment with things, when you feel that sacredness or beauty, um, to inquire into what actually is involved for me in that experience, perceptually and conceptually. Um, Now, we can have experiences of everything is equally enchanted, um, but oftentimes it's interesting. Some things seem to be more enchanted or enchantable, if you like, than others. So, for example, um, plastic artifacts that are made without um, seeming care for the aesthetics or anything, just functional, just convenient, or whatever, um, versus, say, a flower. Um, It's easier to have that sense of sacredness, um, for most people, um, and enchantment with the flower. Or, um, in nature or wilderness, um, uh, as opposed to in, in a busy city street, or, or a run-down city street, um, whatever. Um, not always, and, and, but, but, and with the spiritual enchantment, it's more possible um, to have everything equally enchanted. But sometimes, just as a, this is just a suggestion, um, which I think was very interesting and can be, you know, subtle and difficult to, to actually find out, to discern, um, what is... If there's a sense of divinity, um, what conceptions are wrapped up in that perception of divinity for you at that time? Hard, hard to articulate, hard to actually discern. So I'm just men- mentioning that as a possibility. Now, 
probably obvious at this point, and I've mentioned it before, but wrapped up on, in this, in this whole question of um, this world that I inhabit is related to the question of matter, and all of that has t- very much to do with um, science and typical or uh, typical scientific thinking that has imbued our culture, and, um, and so wrapped up in this whole. Um, practice of cosmopoesis and re-enchantment is the whole kind of, if you like, question of and questioning of science, and the whole, or rather the relationship with science. So, uh, again, I want to quote some uh, free, uh, uh, from Nietzsche, um, who talks about, or writes about science as a prejudice. Uh, um, and he's really talking about this faith in scientism, this overextension, this exclusivity, this claim of uh, scientism that everything can be reduced or explained um, in, in terms of a certain kind of, of, of reduction of scientific thinking. Um, so partly uh, there's a sort of delightful... Um, what's the word? Uh, delightful ranting and... Uh, vitriol in, in the way he writes sometimes, so, you know, you might react to that, but you can also just enjoy it. It's kind of a little bit theatrical. It's sort of one of the um, one of the selves he uh, inhabits as theatre, consciously so, I would say. And so he's talking about differently, he's talking about the faith with which so many materialistic natural scientists, I'm quoting him now, um, rest content nowadays. The faith with which so many materialist naturalist scientists rest content nowadays, in other words, unquestioned. The faith in a world that is supposed to have its equivalent and its measure in human thought and human valuations. A, quote, world of truth. Again, there's that truth claim, the reality claim, that can be mastered completely and forever with the aid of our square little reason. What? Do we really want to permit existence to be degraded for us like this, reduced to a mere exercise for a calculator and an indoor diversion for mathematicians? Above all, one should not wish to divest existence of its rich ambiguity, Again, there's this this call to the multiplicity of perception, the the uh, multiplicity of the possibility of interpretation. This rich ambiguity. He goes on. That is a dictate of good taste, gentlemen. The taste of reverence for everything that lies beyond your horizon. So again, rather than circumscribing things in this neat little view, thinking we have reality. Um, uh, there's just a few more discoveries to make, but essentially, this is the reality. What's beyond that horizon? Is there something in us that wants to, um, uh, uh, and that, that wants to push through and beyond and expand that horizon? It has reverence, as he says, for that. So he talks then um, about the claim of justifiable, uh, justifying an interpretation of the world that permits counting calculating, weighing, seeing, and touching, and nothing more. And he says, that is a crudity and a naivety, assuming that it is not a mental illness and idiocy. (laughs) Then he goes on, Would it not be rather probable that, conversely, precisely the most superficial and external aspect of existence, what is most apparent, its skin and centralization. In other words, what is empirical, and and the scientific is based on the empirical. 
this seemingly obvious experience and the whole notion of positivism so we can only um, understand things in terms of the empirical experience and the science that, that comes out of that. Um, would it not be rather probable that um, this is what what is uh, most apparent in this way would be grass first and might even be the only thing that allowed itself to be grasped. A, quote, scientific interpretation of the world, as you understand it, might therefore still be one of the most stupid of all possible interpretations of the world, meaning that it would be one of the poorest in meaning. So we've touched on this in the retreat. He's, he's uh, uh, explaining things in... In, in ways that we've already talked about, uh, or similar to what we've already talked about. This thought, he continues, is intended for the ears and consciousness consciences of our mechanists, who nowadays like to pass as philosophers and insist that mechanics is the doctrine of the first and last laws on which all existence must be based as on a ground floor. And so he's saying what we've been talking about just in different different language. But an essentially mechanistic world would be an essentially meaningless world. Assuming that one estimated the value of a piece of music according to how much of it could be counted, calculated, and expressed in formulas, how absurd would such a, quote, scientific estimation of music would be? How absurd would such a scientific estimation of music be? What would one have comprehended, understood, grasped of it? Nothing. Really nothing of what is music in it. Yeah, so he's making very similar points to what we said, but in very uh, uh, colourful, theatrical, and, 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 and sort of vital, um, vital language. I'm cutting in his, uh, in his critique. So as I said, the, this relationship that we actually have, whether, whether it's something we realise or not, whether we think about it or not, the relationship we have with... Um, classical scientific, meaning Newtonian scientific, mechanistic scientific ideas, and scientism. Um, all of this is actually crucial. Crucial to our sense of existence, our life, what our practice is, what the path can be, this whole notion of the possibilities of re-enchantment or non-possibilities. All of that. And so, philosophy of science becomes important Curiously, it's not at all abstract because so much of our assumptions, so much of our perception, our sense of existence and the world, so much of our uh, what's called in German the Weltanschauung, the the, the world view, is is um, informed by, influenced by, indoctrinated by certain. Um, um, actually outmoded scientific assumptions. We don't realize that. We don't actually realize um, what our assumptions are often. So this philosophy of science, to me, is, is really important, really interesting nowadays, and, uh, and maybe at some point in another talk, talk, not on this retreat, but another talk um, devoted to that, because it's not abstract. What the hell has this got to do with the Dharma? It's got everything to do with it nowadays. It's got everything to do with Dharma. It's got everything to do with my sense of existence and liberation and possibility and all of that. This is repeating now. So I don't know when it was. Maybe about 100 years ago. I can't remember. Um, uh, the philosophers Max Horkheimer and Theodore Adorno wrote a book together called The Dialectic of Enlightenment. Enlightenment in this case meaning Western Enlightenment. 
post-scientific revolution, etc. Um, and again, to quote them, because again, they're critiquing um, the uh, the assumptions of science that came to that have come to pervade our culture, and still so a hundred years later. Um, but they uh, point out that this classical uh, scientific approach uh, and, and the mechanism, uh, that's, uh, the mechanistic assumptions, all that's involved in all that, uh, they point out that it cannot accommodate um, everything about existence. It cannot explain that in trying to reduce and approach the whole of our existence um, as if its reality is... Um, best and most truly explained um, or at the sort of ground level by this kind of classical scientific, classical mechanistic scientific approach. Um, that, that's actually one-sided and um, prevents, an, or rather it provides only an incomplete, a kind of diminished understanding of nature and an understanding of nature as an object to be controlled and manipulated. This was something that Theodore Adorno um, stressed quite a lot, and you see here the, the uh, beginnings of also a, a critique about our relationship with the environment, of course. Nature, through this view, becomes an object to be controlled and manipulated. I, I would say that's he emphasized that a lot as part of the problem. And uh, they write, uh, men pay for the increase in their power with alienation from that over which they exercise their power. So yes, science and technology have enormous power over nature through this classical scientific mechanistic paradigm, but we pay for it with alienation from nature. And as the scientific revolution gained steam and, and the ideas in the line became more pervasive over, actually over a couple hundred years, it wasn't like a, 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 an immediate thing, as they became more the dominant view in, in our Western culture. Um, and that uh, ostensibly rational movement that was intrinsic to the Western Enlightenment, the, the ostensibly rational, the seemingly rational movement to um, try and eliminate all forms of prejudice and dogmas. That's the whole um, principle of the classical scientific approach. Let's get to some kind of objective, unbiased reality. We can do that through the scientific approach, and that's what science does. It gives us that view um, of um, an objective view um, without bias, without prejudice, and we have basically faith in that, we believe in that. Um, so even then, as this was gaining steam in the culture and came to be the most predominant view, um, that kind of uh, what's philosophical positivist reasoning, uh, which is just another word for saying that, based, as I said, based on what we can sense, empiricism, um, and uh, the, the, the science that comes out of that. The positive uh, positivist reason, it still remains, this is what they write, engulfed in mythology. You haven't actually got rid of a mythology there. You think you have, you believe you have, but you haven't. And by positivism, again, I mean a sort of dogmatic assertion. There's a dogma involved in the philosophy of positivism. It actually just asserts as a dogma, nature must always be understood in terms um, of, of quantitative categories. So again, we're, we're um, uh, 
is tied up with that whole notion of measurement that I mentioned in in uh, uh, in the opening evening on the opening evening. Measure if if something can be measurable, then that's a sign that it's real. Measurement and reality go together. So all this is wrapped up in this scientific view. But then uh, Hockheimer and Adorno write. But the process, this is the mythology, the process is always decided from the start. Mathematical procedure, including the procedure of measuring everything uh, and construing what is measured as real, mathematical procedure becomes, so to speak, the ritual of thinking. So, again, tied up in the whole assumption we have things, the way we think about things, is is this whole, whole kind of what they're calling a mythology, ritual and mythology. And it's not realized. So there have been lots, um, in, in, in modern Western philosophy, lots of critiques from lots of different directions and um, uh, starting positions, um, beginning to see that we cannot just adopt the classical, um, as a mechanistic, Newtonian um, view or assumptions of the scientific revolution, they just do not fly for lots of different reasons. And how much, as I, what I'm really emphasizing here, is how much that underpins our sense of things in the modern culture. So there's the, again, just to repeat, what what liberates that, what opens it up? It, it might be an approach through Western philosophy, it might be that, that some some of us just have a more poetic attitude to existence and to things and to life and, and selves. It might be through a deep exploration of the teachings of emptiness and the practice of emptiness and seeing dependent arising. It might be um, it might be through uh, a, a deeper understanding of quantum physics, actually through science itself that starts to subvert, if you like, the very principles or assumptions on which science was, was initially based. But that, that's an interesting one, because still, actually, most scientists, and, and oftentimes a lot of uh, quantum scientists, just ignore that more philosophical, uh, the philosophical implications or the philosophical questions that come up. And so they know that, that they're there, but they just ignore them, or it makes no impact in their life. But as I said, why am I harping on about this? Because it has implications for the sense of the world that we live in. And that has all kinds of implications for self, path, practice, existence, possibility, all kinds of things. Even uh, such fundamentals of existence as time and space, and again, maybe in other retreats, I'd give whole talks about time and about space, um, what is, you know, that's part of the way of thinking about world. Well, world involves time, sense of time, assumptions about time, and assumptions about space. They're fundaments of, of when we say or feel or sense world. But what is the relationship with all that? What is the perception, the conception? Um, and even notions or senses, or our notion and sense of space um, uh comes to be uh, th- uh, questioned through modern science itself. So that the usual understanding that, again, it's a modernist, it's a cultural modernist understanding of, sp- of space. Because it's the most obvious thing. Space is just a kind of 
well, empty, neutral, meaningless um, vacuum, if you like, that's then filled with stuff at certain locations in space. Um, that's, funnily enough, actually quite a modernist view, that it exists objectively and that's the reality of things. We don't realize it's so intrinsic, so woven into our very sense of existence and what the world is. But that's actually a culturally conditioned, culturally constructed modernist view, and it was not always um, the the view everywhere and for all time that, that humanity uh, had, human beings had. And with the rise of um, both relativity and, and quantivism, we start to see that space is not actually independent of matter and energy. Again, the, the usual view is there is space and matter is the lumps of matter here or there or moving around in space as something separate from matter. Space is just the you know, uh, context, if you like. But with uh, especially Einstein's general theory of relativity from 1916, actually space... Uh, and time, in fact, are not independent of the matter in it. The matter um, is not separate from it and actually shapes space and time, and as does the energy. And then in quantum physics, there's also notions of actually, um, if you like, at a quantum level, space is nothing, nothing like what we conceive of it as. Um, it's more like uh, what they call quantum bubbles or quantum foam. Uh, actually, there's all kinds of theories. So that things that are so obvious, just like, well, space is, things are separate in space. So there's this end of something and that end of something, or there's this corner of space and that corner of space of a room or whatever it is. There's a beginning of something and an end of something. But these seemingly so obvious notions of separation and continuity don't actually hold, they're not so to speak, um, fundamental realities as, uh, um, as, we, as the quantum world gets probed. So most people these days have heard of the idea of wormholes, uh, the popular in scientific uh, sci-fi you know, movies and novels, so you go through a wormhole in the universe and uh, you, know, you suddenly end up um, on a different side of the universe or a different time, wormholes in space-time, etc. You know, what a strange idea. But even more than that, or stranger to our, um, uh, much stranger, much more challenging to our usual notion of space, our habitual notion of space, is the whole idea of non-locality. Maybe it's a little unfair of me to mention all this stuff and not really go into it and explain it. But um, this is something that has been proven uh, um, as a sort of, undeniable fact of nature um, through a whole bunch of experiments came out of something called Bell's Theorem and then someone, a French scientist called um, I think his name was Aspect, Alain Aspect um, 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 so whatever um, future theories of, of um, reality come out of, out of science um, this idea that actually um, two particles can become what they call entangled and actually influence each other um, instantaneously, even if they're at different ends of the universe. So the whole idea is like, this place is different from that place. And what happens here, um, it takes time to get to what's over there. The whole notion of, are they really different places? What's going on there? It's called non-locality. So it's a radical challenge to our whole notions of space and time.
and the John Archibald Wheeler, uh, just to give one more example, t has had a theory. So now we're talking about in the realm of theory that actually of what's called geon. So actually, what subatomic particles are um, is not so much a lump of something, a billiard ball of something, or a point of something moving in space, but actually a particle is a whole, H-O-L-E, in space-time. So this is a, a theory, and, and um, uh, hasn't been proved yet, but it's a way of conceiving. So that matter and space both are not at all how... Uh, uh, not really how we assume them to be, how we uh, assume them. All of this is getting challenged through science. And actually, a whole other level here wrapped up in that is, is actually what the status of scientific theories is as well. And that's a whole other question, but I won't go into that now. So the typical view, the typical conception of <coughs> um, matter world, space, time, body, etc., is fine. It's completely fine. It has its validity. Clearly, it's functional. Um, what, what I absolutely want to object to and raise my voice to is the insistence that it is true and uh, that it is the only reality. This is reality. Anything else is make-believe or delusion or whatever. So of course it's fine as a view, and it's fine for someone to, uh, you know, spend most of their time in that view. Of course it is. This insistence that it is, um, that it is true. It's only true, and explicitly or implicitly, then founding um, uh, a total sort of philosophy or a kind of dharma or a path um, uh, that somehow. Limited to that and and uh, limiting in that way and founding that on its supposed truth, whether it's an explicit or an implicit claim. This I, I would I, I do have a problem with something um, not conscious, not thought through, not aware, maybe dishonest, um, or, or maybe just lacking in insight. So get back to what Blake said: this save me from single vision. That's the single vision, and then it's and then it's asserted dogmatically in some of what was called this aggressive secularism or whatever. Um, this this I must we must raise our voices against, open up through questioning and through insights that can happen in all kinds of ways. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.